This is Daniel Gallardo, and you're listening to the Tenkara Cast, a podcast about the simple Japanese method of fly fishing, Tenkara. In the Tenkara Cast, we'll be sharing information on techniques, history, philosophy, and Tenkara stories from anglers all over the world. This podcast is brought to you by Tenkara Yosei, introducing Tenkara outside of Japan since 2009. It's only possible we create content such as this podcast and videos because of your support. So we thank you so very much for purchasing Tenkara Yosei rods, lines, and flies. I hope you enjoy learning more about the simple method of fly fishing. So in today's Tenkara cast, I've got with me the author, Morgan Lyle. Uh, A lot of people in the Tenkara community have heard his name. He's written a lot of articles about Tenkara for different publications. And now he's the newest author of a really cool book called Simple Flies, 52 Easy-to-Tie Patterns that Catch Fish. And uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the idea of simple flies, simple fly fishing, and that kind of thing. So thanks so much for joining me on the call here today, Morgan. How's it going? Uh, It's going great, Daniel. Thanks for asking me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, so congratulations on getting this book out, uh, 52 Easy to Tie Patterns. But uh, as I've learned in in my recent, recent history here, putting a book together is definitely no easy feat <laughs> uh you did a terrific job with this book uh and uh, tell us how was uh how was it the the work of putting the book together it, it was a lot of fun and you're right it's a project no question about it but it, it was uh, very enjoyable to do um i got to talk to a lot of very cool and interesting people and do some interesting theories about why very simple impressionistic tries work as well as they do work in many cases, just as well, and often better than the more detailed and complex slides. And I got to also sort of go back and review um, things that uh, people have written in the past on this subject. And it, it turns out that that's a conversation that's been going on for a long time. And that was one of the most fun things to discover, really, is that people have been you know, talking about whether it's better to, to keep it simple and impressionistic or to be as detailed as you can. That's been going on since at least the 1850s that I know of, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was being discussed before that. Wow, yeah, and, and that's one of the things that I really liked about the book. You really bring in some good history, you know, like the, the tires that, you know, have kind of advocated for simple flies well before the the advance of Tenkara here in the United States. What is the, like when you talk about the 1850s, like one of the earliest uh, references to simple flies. What is one of the earliest uh, references, or who is one of the earliest advocates to simple flies? One of the earliest champions I came across was a, a man named W. C. Stewart in Scotland, and, and he might be familiar to a lot of your listeners. He's the guy who invented the uh, the, the Stewart spider. Well, actually, he, he publicized it. It pains to say he didn't invent it, but he knew the guy who did. But um. And, that, you know, it, it's nothing more than a very simple wet fly. It's, it's really a, a fly that's very much in keeping with the Tenkara mindset. Just a simple, um, a, a starling hackle and some brown thread. That's it. He didn't even really take the trouble to try to make it very pretty. It looks a little unruly and a little messy. It was almost the only fly he ever used. And he was like one of the most famous fishermen of his day. And he was very widely read, very influential. So, um, that, and, and he... <laughs> Some, some fairly snarky things to say about people who were, you know, kind of obsessed with, uh, with, with relentlessly changing flies and trying to always have the perfect fly for the situation on their line. You know, he, he had a pretty pretty interesting take on it. Oh man, I wish I could have met him. I suspect I would have gotten along with him just fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I think he would have definitely been down with the with the Tenkara movement for sure. Yeah, and the book, of course, it's not all about Tenkara flies. I mean, there's all kinds of different flies, different categories that the the listeners who are familiar with fly fishing will recognize, like dry flies, nymphs, and wet flies, and that kind of thing. Uh, as opposed to, you know, if uh, if somebody's completely new to fly fishing and maybe they've just kind of discovered fly fishing through Tenkara, we really haven't talked about all these different categories. Uh, you know, the Tenkara flies tend to be a little bit more like a soft tackle kind of wet fly, very generic, but they can fish in a lot of different ways. Uh, can you tell us, you know, like also the the categories of flies that you that somebody might find in your book and also what is the... In your opinion, what is the one of the simplest of the categories, if there is one? 
Well, well honestly, uh, the book is, is kind of divided into a, a really a very traditional arrangement for a, a, a fly fly tying book and or a fly fishing book: dry flies, wet flies, nymphs, and streamers. Um, and, and it occurred to me as I was writing it that streamers actually it could be thought of as, as among the most simple ways to do it because all you really need to imitate, you know, a, a, a bait fish, a small fish, is is to tie something along and slender to a hook. And you've, you've got lots of different things to choose from to do that with, whether it be a bucktail or saddle hackle feathers from a from a rooster or, you know, you know, strips of rabbit fur. But I mean honestly, once you attach that material to the hook, you're you're ninety percent done. You could fiddle around a little beyond that if you want to. And I don't think it matters all that much after that point. I think once you've got your your streamer set up, you're you're in business. But um, and another interesting thing that that occurred to me during the writing of the book is that um, that some of the the most successful nymph patterns that people use uh, also tend to be some of the simplest flies. And of course, the obvious example is the killer bug, which is really nothing more than just a little yarn on a hook. There's no tail, no abdomen, no wing case, no hackle, no, none of the stuff that traditionally associated with trout flies. And yet it works great. I mean, that was the fly that inspired the book. When I started experimenting with the killer bug, I was really surprised and happy. And, and I began thinking about this whole question of, you know, how can such a simple fly be so effective? And, and of course, you know, the, the killer bug was invented by a, a fairly well-known guy, a man named Frank Sawyer in England, who was a riverkeeper on the Avon River, uh, he took care of a private stretch of the river that belonged to a to an association uh, for retired military officers, a pretty high-level fisher. And Frank Sawyer was an expert fly fisherman and an expert fly tire. He was fully capable of making flies with tails and abdomens and thoraxes and wing cases and tackles and all that stuff, and he did. And yet in this case, he chose to make a fly out of nothing but yarn on a hook, and it works great. So that was really the kind of thing that that inspired me. And, and another interesting point about nymphs, I, I don't know if, if any fly gets examined more closely by a trout or by any species of fish than a nymph, because the way you fish them is you just sort of drift them along with, at the speed of the current, along right on the as close to the bottom of the stream as you can, where presumably the fish get a really good look at it. And and if you would, you might think that if any fly needed to be especially realistic, it would be a nymph because they're the ones that that you know that could, they're the most visible to the fish. And yet these simple impressionistic nymphs are just terrific. Interesting. Yeah, and I like the uh, what you mentioned about you know the simplest fly being a streamer because uh, you just kind of tie something on top of the hook shank and you know. It, it essentially becomes something that might look like a streamer if it's a little bit longer. It would be like a bait fish. And it kind of reminds me, actually, of my very first fly that I've ever tied. I have a very vivid memory of it because I was about 14 years old or so. And, you know, I had I grew up fishing. I grew up doing all kinds of fishing with bait and then, like, lures. And at one point, I looked at fly fishing. A friend of mine in high school was doing some fly fishing and honestly I actually looked at it and was like oh this looks way too complicated you know like my lure works totally fine but I think I went home and probably for who knows how long a few weeks or a couple months I probably started thinking about how cool it would be to create this lure you know at the time I was actually trying to create lures out of plastic and rubber and that kind of thing which is messy and never turned out very good but I was like, how cool would it be to tie something like out of a feather and have the same kind of effect? And my very first fly, I just had, for reference, all I had was a few images of, you know, these things that were feathers tied onto the hook. And I had no idea how they were done. Uh, but at one point, I had a hook on my hand, a bear hook. And, and literally, I'm sitting on the uh, in the living room, and there's a pillow, a down pillow, and a feather popped out. And I literally got this down feather from the pillow and I tied it onto the hook shank and I, I have no idea if the fly still exists in Brazil uh, or my uh, I left a little collection of uh, my first flies but I just tied it by hand using a little piece of thread and a feather and you know and when I think about it it does remind me of a streamer actually uh, and it's uh, that's probably the simplest fly I've ever tied because I didn't do anything to it <laughs> yeah. 
Well, sure. And yeah, your instinct had you, uh, you know, tying essentially marabou streamers when you, before you had any idea what you were doing. Absolutely. What is the, what is one of the simplest flies do you think you have tied? I mean, maybe between the 52 or maybe one of your earliest flies before you started making them a little bit more complicated. Well, you know, when I, when I began flying, tying flies, I, you know, I, I had a book, I had a, a the Orvis fly tying manual, which really was very good. And, and I suppose I probably followed the same progression most people do. I, you know, I think it was probably a woolly bugger, um, which, which continues to be maybe the only fly anybody really needs. Um, but, and, and again, I'll, I keep coming back to the, to the killer bug because it is just so simple. It's a little bit of wire on the hook for a little bit of weight and also to, to sort of bind down the, the yarn at the, the back end of the hook. But that's it. You don't even use thread. There's not even any thread involved in tying. So I, I suppose for just sheer, utter simplicity, I'd have to give it to the killer bug. And, uh, and, and again, honestly, you know, if, if you didn't have any fly except the killer bug, you'd still catch plenty of fish for the rest of your life. And you can, you know, you can make a dozen of them in, in a half hour. It's very cool. You know, that's another thing too, Daniel, another aspect of, uh, of simple fly tying that I, that I kind of like, aside from the whole, aside from any aesthetic question, aside from any, you know, sort of question about how, how well a simple fly works compared to a complicated one. You know, the fact is, I just don't really have at this point in my life the physical space or the time for very involved fly tying to, to take up a big space in my life, you know? And I really like the idea of just being able to whip up a few flies that I'm going to need for the weekend's fishing or the, or the next day's fishing without it taking a lot of time and without having to have all kinds of junk spread around me. And, and I think a lot of people... Uh, are, are sort of feeling that too, you know, it's, uh, it just fits in your life a little better. Not, not to say that, you know, that, you know what I mean? And you and I have talked about this before, you know, it's, uh, and I have tied lots of more complicated flies in my life and I've enjoyed doing it, but, uh, I don't know, somehow it, it suits me now for, for the point I'm at in my life and the situation I'm at in my life, the simple fly tying really just kind of feels right and it fits in well. Yeah, and I, I, I totally get that because I think, um, you know, a lot of people, myself included, uh, you know, I have gone through this progression of, you know, maybe starting simply, uh, both in my regular fishing as well as fly fishing. And then over time, things started building up and building up and getting more and more complex. And part of it was actually really good because it was a tremendous learning experience, um, but both with my fly fishing as well as my fly tying, things started getting crowded uh, you mentioned physical space you know i i used to tie like when I, I started fly fishing when i was about 14 or so and then i discovered tinkata when i was 27 26 27 and you know in those years i my fly started getting more and more complex which was fun there's a really fun aspect to that hobby of tying flies and making these elaborate patterns maybe i'll spend 20 minutes tying a mayfly that was I wouldn't call any of my flies that I've tied in my life very realistic, uh, but in that direction, you know, trying to make something that was as realistic as I could make it, essentially, or as intricate as I could make it. But things started getting complicated. I would go to the fly shop and just buy all these materials, and I ended up filling up all this space, you know, with with materials, and then they fly around. And I used to live in a really tiny apartment when I was in the in the middle of most of my fly tying and it was messy you know <laughs> it was not really good and uh, I think uh, part of me just kind of got a little bit I felt a little bit cluttered you know with uh, all of those materials and and then I discovered Tenkata just by happenstance but it, all of a sudden like all of those materials that I had accumulated over the years they they kind of became redundant in a way and I ended up giving a lot of it away I kept a good good amount I kept one kind of wooden box that I would say is about probably 18 inches wide by, you know, 10 by six or something. You know, it's got some kind of random materials in there just in case I decide to try to whip something a little creative. But I think my flies became much simpler when I discovered Tenkata and I discovered that people were using real simple flies to, you know, just thread and feathers all I need. So nowadays my my entire kit, when I travel, when I do presentations or demonstrations, I'll carry a little Ziploc bag that's like 8 by 10 maybe, 
and it's got a little like pheasant kind of cape or you know a pheasant neck uh, it's got a rooster hackle so those two feathers a little different from each other peacock curl and two different colors of thread and hooks and that's all i carry with me so it's yeah. i think there's something to be said about the physical space and then feeling like things got cluttered after so many years yeah there really is something to it and and you know what a, a term that I, I kind of borrowed from a guy who's influenced me a lot in recent years is a writer named Bob Wyatt. And I really recommend his book. Um, it's called uh, What Trout Wants, The Educated Trout and Other Myths, published by Stackpole Books, and I think it came out in 2013. And just what a delightful book. And uh, he's a little provocative and a little iconoclastic, but, but he's a very, very accomplished angler and writer and artist. And... Um, and the term he uses is essentialist. And, you know, there's, there's just a, a few aspects of any good fly that seem to be the things that, that trigger uh, the response of a, of a fish to bite. You know, the, the things that, you know, just sort of a little bell goes off and the fish thinks food or maybe food, which a lot of times is maybe is good enough because there's only one way to check and that's to grab it. So <laughs> same as if, if they were convinced it was food, you know, but... So yeah, I, I and I think so. You you know you mentioned a couple of different kinds of feathers and the thread for the body. Peacock curl is one of those I think an essentialist material. And, and and beyond all that, I really think you're you're getting into stuff that sort of amuses the fly tire more than it interests the fish. I really think. I think so too. <laughs> a lot of times. What are the what are the simple materials? There's actually a in the beginning of the book. There's a section where you talk about the materials. Uh, you know, tying simple flies, uh, tools, materials, and techniques. Um, what are the the most essential materials that people need? If you were maybe if you were to narrow it down to, I don't know, three or four materials. I don't know if you want to put a constraint on yourself like that. But uh, uh, what do you think are the materials that every angler should have in their little fly tying kit? Well, I've, I've got a few favorites. Um, I like, uh, I, I, I think you'd mentioned sort of pheasant, you know, neck or breast feathers. I, I think the pheasant tail, the fibers of a pheasant tail are just absolutely critical. I, we talked about Frank Sawyer a moment ago. He also invented the pheasant tail nymph, which by the way, the way he invented it, it's not really the way that you, you generally see it these days. He tied that fly with nothing except a few pheasant tail fibers and a little length of wire. Again, no thread, no hackle, no uh, partridge curl for the thorax or, or uh, peacock curl for the thorax. Strictly just thread and wire. There's something about that um, pheasant tail material. It, it's, it's got the right texture and the right color and a little bit of iridescence that really makes it an outstanding imitation of a lot of real bugs. I think if, if, you're, if you're fishing someplace, it's got a lot of, a lot of small mayflies, like blue-winged olives, and sulfurs, as we call them here in the East. I mean, a pheasant tail is just, just a spot-on imitation of those bugs. So I would say, you know, pheasant tail fibers are certainly uh, uh, a material I wouldn't want to be without. A little bit of fur, and then all you need is just hairs, hairs your fur, yeah, just hairs your fur. You know, hair, the hair from a rabbit's ears and face. You can you could buy a a hair's mask, as they call it, and make your own. You could buy a little package of it, but it's great stuff. Um, and and as far as hackles go, I I'm just blown away by how how lifelike and realistic partridge hackle looks with the little little you know the speckle. It's got the little black bands on it very soft and it wiggles like crazy in the water and it looks like such a real bug. And I, I, I'm sure that a lot of, well, the, you know, the old English soft tackle patterns, uh, many of them employed um, partridge hackle. That stuff is fantastic. I wouldn't want to be without that. And, um, and, and for dry flies, I, I like fine deer hair to, to make a wing and, you know, something to keep the fly afloat. Again, going back to Bob Wyatt, there's a couple of flies in the book that he sort of, you know, turned me on to in his writing. And, and they're all I use for dry fly fishing now, and I do a fair amount. Um, and, and I really don't make too much effort to try to imitate the, what the mayflies look like on the water because you've got, you know, just this little thing with a little bit of deer hair keeping it afloat and a little hair's fur body, pretty much all you need. Those are, those are you know, pretty much my, uh, my favorites. And for streamer fishing... 
I love using rooster feathers, something about the way that those feathers wiggle around in the water. It's amazing how much they, they look and behave like a, like a real fish and just sort of shimmying in the water. Yeah, one of my talking about mayflies, you know, not necessarily needing to make uh, the mayfly very realistic. One of my favorite little jokes, if you will, is, uh, you know, like a lot of times as anglers, and I, I went through this phase of time, realistic kind of mayflies and uh, using all kinds of materials. Uh, but then like when, you know, we have a mayfly, for example, that has the three little uh, tails, like little fibbits at the end. And as a fly tire, maybe you, you get these three little kind of, you know, like little fibbit kind of nylon materials and you try to imitate the, you know, three little tails that some of the mayflies have. But then we forget that there's an old big, big old hook sticking out on the back as well, which would make it four, you know, uh, four little tails, if, if you right. will. And one of the tails is made of steel. Exactly. Yeah. And kind of heavy as well. So it's uh, sometimes our obsession takes us into this. Uh, thing that we try to imitate it and we forget that the hook is also a part of the fly <laughs> as well. The hook is absolutely a part of the fly. Although, you know, I think what we need to remember is that fish don't know what a hook is, although there's, you know, it, it's debatable whether they, they, after they've been caught once or twice, they start to figure out what a hook is. I'm sure that's possible. Bob Wyatt addresses that question at length. I haven't really figured out an answer yet. But I, I think despite the presence of the hook, I, I don't think the hook puts them off. I I don't think they're looking to say no. I think they're looking to say yes. And that's the point that Bob Wyatt makes. And if they see something on that fly, and quite frankly, I suppose that the tail could maybe be the thing that closes the deal. That, that I, I don't particularly think it's true that you have to have three perfectly aligned mayfly tails, but maybe it's a segmented body or maybe it's a wiggly hackle. Um, I think if those things are there and, and they say, you know, bug, to the fish, they're not that concerned about the hook, at least, at least not until they bite. And that's a great way to put it. Uh, you know, I'm glad you bring it up. I think that's a really good way to do it, uh, to say it. Like the fish are, in general, trying to say yes as opposed to trying to say no. You know, my theory is that the you know a fish a fish's role is try to maximize the food intake and if you ever watch footage of fish underwater for example you're going to see them grabbing leaves and rocks and and they're spitting it out but they're giving it a try um right you know as long as it's not spooking them make you know as long as it's not really putting them off and very often of course we'll see rejections in the last second uh, and that kind of thing and usually when i see that a fish is obviously interested in my fly so therefore, in my opinion, the fly is right, but then there was something in the last second that kind of turned them off, and I typically attribute it to my technique, maybe my drag wasn't proper, but of course, you know, I don't know anything really, I don't know what a fish is thinking, it could be the, the you know, it needed to have three tails and it didn't have any or something, <laughs> I, uh, you know, luckily, uh, we don't have, uh, you know, an algorithm that says exactly what, you know, turns fish on or off, I think. Absolutely. It would take all the fun out of it. And you're right. You know, those little refusals really can be a mystery. You know, he liked it right up to the last second. What happened? You know? Yeah, yeah. But I doubt if he was counting the tails or, you know, checking to make sure the rib was the right color thread or anything like that. <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> and, you know, and that kind of brings me to kind of the question, you know, something that's being in my mind a little bit. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, some experiences that I had recently, too. But what is your definition of simple flies? Because we also kind of have to, you know, in a, in a, probably in a few seconds, we'll start talking a little bit more about the idea of simple flies versus simple fly fishing and how in Tenkara, like, you know, one fly or any fly is kind of okay. But what is your definition of a, what, what constitutes a simple fly in your opinion? The way I approached it when I, when I started doing the book was more or less that any fly that's made of, say, three things or fewer, and, and preferably two or fewer. And I'm talking about the materials you tie onto the hook. I'm not counting the hook in that. And and uh, and uh, also, I, I sort of think of things like, for example, a bead head or maybe a little bit of lead wire on the hook. I, I don't really count those. I think of those as sort of as sort of being part of the chassis of the fly. So I'm thinking about the dressing, you know. And and yeah, one or two or three materials, and and simply constructed without a whole lot of fussing around. Although there are, I, I have to admit, there are a couple of things in my book that are a little fussy to tie, but once once you do a couple of them, you, 
they, they become more simple. But so that, that's how I would think of it. You know, one of the, you know, talking about the one material and, you know, I'm not sure, I don't think I saw this fly in your book and I don't know the name of the fly, but I'm going to look it up and I'll put it on the podcast page, tenkariosa.com forward slash podcast, is this one little fly that is tied with a single CDC feather. And I know you have the CDC and elk uh, fly in your book. But this one is like you you get one CDC feather and you brush the, the fibers back, you essentially make it kind of rounded shape. And and then like what is the, the thickest part of the stem becomes like a little sail, if you will. And uh, and then the you know the rounded kind of feather becomes the what would probably be perceived as the tail by the fish. I'm gonna look it up and I'll try to put it online. But it's like I always remember when I was tying, trying to tie these intricate mayflies, and I was fussiness is probably the right word in there because they were they were probably using three materials, um, but very fussy to tie. You know, like a very particular kind of manners and the tails were done in a proper way. And then I came across this little fat, you know, the, the single CDC feather fly. Um, I'm sure maybe you know the name of it, but, uh, and I think that kind of made a turn for me. And it happened to be right before I discovered Tenkara where, uh, you know, I realized that my flies didn't have to be all that fussy. And that fly was beautiful. And I loved how it landed and floated really nicely and that kind of thing. And and I don't know what that pattern is, so I, I think you've stumped me a little there. But I will I'll, I'll be uh, eager to see when you post it on the site. I'll be sure to look it up. But CDC feather is another one of those things that just really has very nice properties for you know imitating living things. I, I think that's I think the the absolutely key factor you know is just to come up with something that, that looks and seems like a living thing. That's like the, the essential quality a fly's got to have that it be something alive and. And I think when you, you know, when you start fussing with things and adding stuff in the name of making a fly more realistic, I think you're sort of increasing your chances that you might get it wrong and you might end up with something that, you know, it might look cool, but it, it kind of looks like an inanimate object instead of a living thing. And in fact, <clears throat> there's a, what I thought was a very cool quote. This guy was a great interview. This man named Walt Young in Pennsylvania, who's the guy who invented the Walt's worm. Super, super simple nymph, but a very effective nymph. I mean, the guys who fish, you know, the, the competition fly fishers who go to the big tournaments and stuff use it very, very often because it works so well. And Walt Young uses it himself to great effect. And, and again, this is a guy who's an expert fly tire and won lots of competitions making really beautiful detailed flies. But what he became famous for was this ultra, ultra simple thing. But when I interviewed Walt, he said something that I thought was very, very interesting, and, and I'll read it to you now. He said, uh, I think simple is almost always better in fly tying, if for no other reason than it gives the trout less to find fault with. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that yeah. a lot. You know, you, you put a lot of stuff on there, it could look like a little statue of a mayfly, but, you know, fish don't eat statues. Fish eat real bugs. Nice. No, I like that very much. That's a, that's a great quote. I'm going to have to put that up later on the, on the page for this conversation. Because, uh, yeah, I think uh, giving them fewer things to find fault in is, you know, usually, I, you know, uh, when we talked a little bit earlier about fish trying to say yes to things, and all of a sudden there's maybe an extra material there that kind of gave you more drag or too much body or it kind of moved a little funny way, and uh, all of a sudden they get really kind of turned off because of that. Um, so that's a, that's a good way to put it. And, uh, and this little, f the, the fly that I just referred to, I'm going to do a little bit more research on it later, but, uh, you know, it's, it's one CDC feather and like just a very quick, uh, research. It looks like somebody called it the Mirage fly. Uh, hmm. you know, so it's, um, I don't know if that's the name that is, uh, commonly used, but it's uh, also it might have been created by a tire called Agostino Roncalo. So uh, I'll look it up and I'll put it on uh, on the page with our conversation because it's an interesting little pattern. Um, cool name. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, well, I mean, the guy's name is cool, but I mean the fly, the, the Mirage. <laughs> the Mirage, yeah. yeah. So, if, yeah, but, uh, you know, now talking about simple flies versus simple fly fishing because... You know, I think there's a there's a huge difference, you know, between simple flies and 
the, the idea of simple fly fishing that, we, that comes with Tenkara. Um, and I know, like, the first time I met you, actually, was when you and I both met Dr. Shigaki on the same day. It was back in uh, May of 2009. Uh, Dr. Yep. Shigaki, my teacher, had come to talk in the Catskills Fly Fishing Center Museum out in New York. Uh, that's your home grounds, uh, not too far from you. And, you know, I traveled from California at the time to come and meet him. And, you know, and I think we all kind of dro- dropped our jaws a little bit when he was doing his little fly tying demonstration. <laughs> and, you know, and then I remember him tying this fly really quickly using sewing thread that is literally from a dollar store that he bought in Japan and some real cheap brown hackle. He tied a fly, in, on average, he ties a fly in about 50 seconds or so. Um, but I remember in the Catskills Fly Fishing Center and Museum, which for, you know, maybe some of our listeners will recognize, but for those of you who haven't heard of the Catskills, the Catskills is kind of like the cradle of modern fly tying in the United States. Would you agree with that, Morgan? I would. Well, I, I know there's, it's been called the, uh, the birthplace of American fly fishing. And I know that hasn't sat so well with some people across the state line in Pennsylvania, which uh. could also has had some claim to that title too. It it happened in a lot of places, I suppose. But yeah, I I think uh, that's that's probably true. A lot of the of the fishing and the fly tying that we recognize today was pretty much developed in that area. Yeah. So like you know that's like one of the places where there's a lot of really cool, if you will, like innovations in fly tying, or at least some really kind of intricate patterns, some really recognizable patterns came out of the Catskills. But there comes Dr. Ishigaki, uh, as far as I know, is the first person to come to the United States to talk about this Japanese method of fly fishing called Tenkara. And he tied the fly really quickly. And I believe somebody asked him, like, so what is next? You know, you came kind of like implying that, hey, you came all the way from Japan. He must have a bunch of flies to show us. <laughs> um, and then he responded, it's like, this is the only fly I use. And this is the only fly I've used in the last 10 years, he said. And I, I remember there's a little bit of a uh, uh, murmur kind of going around in the room, you know, and some people left it off. And like a lot of most most people there coming from this rich fly tying tradition were completely aghast, you know, at the fact that somebody could be using one fly in 10 years. <laughs> um, what did you think of that experience of hearing this guy who we can call Tenkara Master uh, saying that he hasn't hadn't changed flies in so long? It was a really remarkable experience. And as a matter of fact, I, I start the book off with, with a, an account of that day and the introduction. It's been stuck with me ever since then. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was very interesting. Uh, as you say, that juxtaposition of, you know, just the utterly simple with, you know, literally a museum to, to some pretty, pretty, uh, involved fly tying. Um, and and what people's response to it was at the time, I'm honestly not sure, but I, I know it certainly rang a bell with me. But, you know, the idea of, of one person using one simple fly sort of throughout their career is not entirely new either. Um, a fly that I wish that I'd had in the book, but, but you know, our mutual friend Jason Plath, who has the, the Tenkara Talk blog, did a nice piece on a, a little thing called the Teeny Nymph, which is... Utterly simple. Again, it's a one material fly. It's just a little bit of pheasant tail fibers uh, wrapped onto the hook in, in a certain way. And, and Jim Teeny says that that is the only fly that he's ever used from, I guess, the early 1960s to, to today. And he's caught all kinds of fish on it. So I, I think it says a lot about, you know, it, it's, well, it, it comes down to, to presentation over pattern. And it's not so much the fly you have on, but how you fish it. But again, W.C. Stewart, who we talked about at the beginning, only used the one fly. So, uh, you know, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think maybe, maybe by sort of relieving yourself of, of having to worry about having the right fly all the time sort of frees up your, your mind and your ability to fish better. Yeah. Yeah, and talking about teeny, the teeny nymph, actually, there's a great, yeah, and I know Jason talked about it, and there's also, you know, I'm assuming people that are listening to this like to listen to podcasts, but April Volke, uh, the very famous fly fisher woman, uh, the famous fly angler and guide out in British Columbia, she's got a nice podcast 
uh, called Anchored, and she actually did it, one of my favorite interviews probably that she's done uh, with Jim Tini himself, you know, about his business, the use of the fly. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but because it's been a few weeks since I listened to it, but I think he might have even caught shark with it. I mean, he's got all kinds of fish species using this incredibly simple fly, and that's a and that's a fly that I'll put on our podcast page as well as as well as a link to April's. Um, episode with Jim, but it was a great conversation to listen to as well. That That's terrific. And I'd be very, uh, I'd be eager to hear that too. Good for April. Yeah. That's a, that, that's a, a great interview to do. And I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think Timmy does say that he's caught various saltwater species on that, that same fly. What are the, the flies that, I mean, I, you know, I know you have 52 flies in the book, um, you know, the, should I assume that you carry each one of those in your box, or um, what is? How many flies do you or patterns do you typically carry with you when you go fishing? You think? You know, I got. I usually have a bunch of flies in boxes in a backpack in the car, but actually on me when I'm in the water, I've usually got one box of nymphs and another. And we're talking about trout fishing now. I've got a box of nymphs, and then I've got another box of. Uh, of dry flies and emergers and sort of catches catch can. I'm I'm never as organized as I'd like to be. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I I know that I that I own and I have tied a lot of flies that I will never fish and I will continue tying flies and probably never fish most of them. You know I I think you end up just fishing a handful of patterns anyway. Even even people who don't necessarily think of themselves as as essentialists or simple fly fans. I, I think we all. <laughs> you know, end up going the same way. So, um, yeah, I have with me usually quite a few flies. Uh, how, how many I actually end up using on the stream? Three or four in a typical day, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And what do you think, you know, and I, I'll kind of share my experiences too. A lot of people, you know, in the Tenkara community anyways, has have heard of the the story that I like to share or the philosophy of any fly, you know, also referred to as the one fly. And the idea behind that is, you know, in Tenkara, and that's what Dr. Shigaki shared with us on the very uh, first time that you and I both met him, uh, the Tenkara angler in Japan, he's not really concerned about imitating a particular bug. He's really more focused on the technique and the presentation. And I thought that concept was incredibly interesting because, you know, to me it's... um, when I go fishing, uh, I just don't like thinking too much about what I'm going to tie next. And then it becomes this kind of second guessing game of, you know, like, is this fly going to be the one? Is that fly going to be the one? And, you know, I, I, at that time, I used to change flies all the time. And, and I started thinking about it as well. Well, if I'm changing flies 20 times in a day and it takes me three minutes to change a fly, it's going to be an hour of fishing time that I just completely wasted by changing flies. Uh, so yep. the the concept really appealed to me. And, and kind of like you got the quote in your book, too. Um, and I always like to say it because I am the kind of guy that really goes to a restaurant and I... I absolutely hate seeing a bunch of options in a menu. Like recently I went to a uh, Asian fusion restaurant and it literally was about a phone book thick because actually they try to cram every single Asian cuisine into this one restaurant. And later on I learned that they actually have a chef or a cook from each one of those countries. But it terrified me. I was like, I told my wife, can like, can you please choose something for me? Cause I'll eat anything. <laughs> uh, and it's it, the same thing kind of goes for my fly tie. I mean, if I always had somebody just kind of handing me a fly, I've got no problem putting on whatever it's going to be on. But I like the idea of just having this, you know, very few patterns or few variations of a pattern, if you will, and not having to think about it. And it kind of gives me personally, I think it kind of gives me a little bit more room to, focus on what could I do a little bit better with my technique? You know, is there like a way that I could entice the fish with this fly? Um, and I like to share the story. Like some people might've misinterpreted, you know, the writing that I've done, I think as thinking that I was being dogmatic about using one fly or, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But I think the concept and you've alluded to this, like um, the f- we, the fish want to eat, something um and i think that the fly that is in the water is the one that's going to catch fish in the end you know if it's presented properly if the fish is eager to eat 
I have never claimed to say that uh, that is the way to do it or that that's better than any other way. It's just kind of a philosophy that the biggest value of that philosophy for me is to show that there's a different way of thinking about fly fishing. You know, it's not all about imitating uh, a bug. There's people, there's a group of people in a different part of the world that are thinking in a different way. And I kind of like the idea of studying that. But what do you think about that idea of any fly is okay? Do you think there is any merit to that at all? I really do. And I guess the way I, the way I put it in the book is that, um, you know, in, in the sort of traditional Western way of, of uh, the Western school of thought of, of fly selection as it is today, I, I think at the same time we're expecting too much and too little from our flies. Uh, too much because, you know, we have this idea that, oh gosh, I've got to pick the right one and it's got to be perfect, you know, and, and different from all the other thousands of flies that have been tied over the years. Um, and, and we're expecting too little from them because almost any fly can be the right fly in the right situation. You got to trust your fly. Um, and uh, that's, I had a thought in my mind and I just sort of, it sort of flitted away from me as they often do. But, well, I'm reminded of a, I had spoken to a guy and I don't have him in the book, but sort of wish I had very cool guy here in New York. His name is Warren Williams. He, um, he, he was a guide, uh, a guide on the Great Lakes, Steelhead Rivers here in New York State. He uh, was uh, involved in the competition fly fishing scene. He was very heavily influenced by the European competition guys who obviously take their fish catching very seriously. And he had really changed his thinking about whether, whether it's wise to try to imitate insects. If you do manage to, to tie a fly that's a perfect replica of all the real insects in the stream, which which are themselves pretty well camouflaged and pretty hard for fish to see. And, well, you know, congratulations, you've just made another one of them that's probably not going to be noticed. His, his way of thinking was that a, a, a fish can't eat a fly it hasn't noticed. And he wants actually to draw some attention to the fly and to and not even just he'll, he'll dead drift flies, but only in the service of getting the fly down deeper. He likes to fish his flies to see action mm-hmm. and, and to sort of, as you said a moment ago, entice. And I think that's one of the things that always appealed to me about Tenkara fishing is, uh, is the emphasis that's on, you know, giving the fly some movement in the water. That's the invitation, that little jigging you do with the, with the soft tackle wet fly. I think that is, is very often what's responsible for, for catching, not just making little, you know, carbon copy imitations of real insects. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also the, what I, you know, I always like to tell people about tenkara flies. I mean, before, you know, I really got into using the reverse hackle, soft hackle kind of wet flies that we use, in, that are very commonly known in tenkara, the sakasake body as we call them. Um, I used to use an care catas all the time and that worked, you know, and it's, um, but then I started kind of playing around with the idea of one fly is okay or any fly is okay. And I eventually settled on the reverse hackle tenkara fly because I think there was a few things to be said about it. I mean, first, it's a real simple, very quick fly to tie. I mean, it uses two materials, maybe three if you use peacock curl. It's thread, feather, maybe peacock curl. And then the other thing, too, is that they don't imitate anything in particular at all. And But what they do is that they... They suggest a variety of different bugs that, are, that might be in the water any given moment. Uh, if you kind of fish it like a dead drift and maybe the hackle opens up a little bit more, uh, it's going to have a little bit more profile, maybe it kind of imitates a, you know, like a mayfly, but it could also pass off as a caddis, you know, if it's kind of moving along in a stream and the fish has to react quickly. Uh, but if you give emotion, it might be looking just like a like a nymph that is trying to break free, you know, come up to the surface or go out, go onto a rock, for example. So it's, um, they don't imitate any particular, they're not imitative flies, but they're very suggestive of a huge number of bugs that are out there. So I think making these um, suggestive flies, you know, like that are just kind of giving an impression is going to be in a way much more versatile and it kind of helps you keep your fly fishing simple as well. And then, like, the other thing that I do pay attention to, and I think it's important, is size. Um, so, like, Dr. Shigaki, you know, he 
he's famous for kind of using any fly or one fly, but, you know, both him and I, we have different sizes in our boxes. Um, and especially if the water is moving kind of fast and maybe bigger water or murky water, we'll put on a bigger fly that kind of has more visibility to the fish, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, the guide uh, was interested in kind of giving it some action to just make it very visible. And I think there's something to be said about that as well. I agree. But, you know, I, I should point out too, Daniel, that I, I don't, you know, entirely uh, discount the whole notion of hatch matching because I, I think there are situations yeah. where fish just get very, very used to eating an insect if they're in an environment where there's just a lot of that particular insect. And and sometimes I think you really do have to, to use something that, it's, you know, that it's at least close to, to that insect and the most important characteristic is its size. So it's a great point that you bring up about having different sizes of flies. The, the example that comes to my mind, because it's, you know, it's here, here in the East, probably the, the best known, and, and there are lots of them, of course, in the Western U.S., but here in the East on the Delaware River, very cold river because it's a tailwater below a, a very large impoundment with a very tall dam, and it's got mostly wild fish in it and a lot, a lot of mayflies, and they just have really prolific hatches almost every day, and, and the fish really do get used to eating a particular thing, and I don't think that if, if you show them the wrong fly, they necessarily are thinking, oh, well, that's that's not a fly. That That's not the kind of fly I'm supposed to eat. I just don't think it registers as food with them. You know, I think it just looks like another thing floating along in the water or on the water. As, as you mentioned before, you know, there's all kinds of junk floating around, and sometimes they'll grab it and see what it is. But when they get used to seeing, for example, you know, a size 16 sulfur mayfly, and they've eaten hundreds of them every day for the past six months, you can understand how they how they'll be interested in, in eating things that resemble that. So I think there probably are times where it's wise to try to to present them something that's about the right size of, of what, they've, what they're accustomed to eating and, and the right shape uh, to an extent. I, I think it's kind of folly to think that you're ever going to create a, a perfect imitation of something. But there, there is a place for hatch matching for sure. You know, and, and, and I'm glad you bring it up because it's actually something I wanted to you know, talk to you about as well. Like I've, uh, you know, there's part of me that's kind of been turning around a little bit and I've all, and, and, and actually this is kind of funny. So one of our, uh, there's a guy, uh, a teacher here in, uh, Leadville, Colorado, Mark Cole. And Mark is, uh, he's been teaching at Colorado Mountain, uh, college here. Uh, he teaches a fly fishing guide course. And at one point, he joined a uh, group clinic that I did in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was talking about the idea of one fly. It's, it was, the concept was still very new to me, but I was playing around with it. And he's a, he's a very good note taker. So apparently, he's got that in his notebook where I said on that particular day, uh, I don't have the best memory of it, but it's, it's in writing. <laughs> uh, but I said <laughs> that the, the one fly you know, idea works until it doesn't. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and it's, and I've had like a few experiences now that, you know, like uh, I was estimating the other day, uh, I've been using essentially four variations of one fly, the ones that are available on our website. There are two that are size 12, Sakasa Kebari, reverse hackle style flies. Uh, there's a size eight and there's a size 16. And I've been using those four variations for, just about five years now, actually. Uh, we're getting close to that, if not five years. Um, and I'm estimating about 400 days of fishing, give or take, uh, just for a simple math. And so far, I've actually had, you know, and I fish all over the country and a few different countries as well for trout. And out of those 400 days of fishing, I've had four days in, and out of those four days, those two particular rivers where I really didn't think I could get my fly to work. Um, you know, again, I fish also with some of the most experienced anglers in the country, and those are the only four days that I've seen somebody definitely catching more fish than I was by using a different fly, different rig, and that kind of thing. So in general, I think it works, uh, but I think the main thing that I like to tell people, you know, it's again, it's a different way of thinking about it, and if it appeals to you, definitely give it a try. And based on my odds... I would say that 99% of the time it works. And that's kind of my, you know, very uh, fairly accurate math. <laughs> four days out of 400 days of fishing, uh, the idea of one fly has worked. But the other four days it didn't. Um, 
Well, 990 is a pretty good batting average, so yeah, I, I wouldn't <laughs> mess with it. Well, you know, it, you've got it pretty well dialed in there. But, um, it, but it, and again, though, talking about the Delaware River, that same Delaware River, I do remember one time fishing, uh, and, and it, it might have been something to do with the, the character of the water I was fishing. The Delaware is, is best known for, you know, having pretty long, flat pools. Um, but there are a few riffles, and I like them. In fact, I was fishing with the Tenkara rod. And there was one of those little sulfur hatches going off with, uh, you know, just lots and lots and lots of these size 16 little yellow mayflies. They were everywhere, and trout were eating them. You saw them rising to them. And I wasn't having much luck trying to imitate them, and, and just as much for the hell of it as anything else, I tied on a size 12 killer bug, which looked nothing like them, looked nothing like their nets, and I did catch fish on it. So, I mean, you know, there you go. Well, you know, in my experiences too, they've been interesting. As a matter of fact, one of the experiences was just this last week. And as a matter of fact, with Dr. Ishigaki. <laughs> so I think you enjoy you know, learning about that one because uh, this was actually the same river. We went to the North Platte uh, out, outside of Casper, Wyoming. And Dr. Shigaki came here, wanted to take him somewhere where there's a lot of good fish, but the fishing is really challenging. And both and I, he and I had a great conversation last week before we went up there about the idea of always learning something new, you know. And like in one point, he was talking about how he recently kind of, kind of got shown something new by somebody who was using dry flies only in Japan. And you know, I mean, he's sixty-seven years old, I think. Yeah, sixty-seven years old right now, and he's more than willing to admit that he's always learning something new. So we went out the the day after we had this conversation. We went to the North Platte River outside of Casper, uh, Fremont Canyon kind of area. And I was, I was actually there in March uh, with a friend of mine, Doug, who is also a guide. And that day in March when Doug and I were just fishing by ourselves, I had a real hard time with the one fly. I mean, I fished it for, a, it might have been like almost two hours, like an hour or something. I caught one fish. And in the meantime, I think Doug had had like five or six fish, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm definitely not beyond or above changing flies if something's definitely working uh, much better. So Doug gave me this fly, I think, I believe it's called a mayhem. I'm going to look it up and I'll put it on the podcast page as well. A uh, little tiny nymph at a time. And Doug is a guide in the area, so he knows the water. And he put that on for me, and I've got no qualms about it. And I started hooking fish, and I was like, whoa, okay, this is <laughs> definitely, you know, a very, very clear difference. Um, and then Dr. Shigaki and I went back this last week, you know, and we're in, at the end of August here. So a few months later, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe the flies are going to be different. The bugs are going to be different. We might have a chance with the Tinkata fly. And we did hook a few, like, I think two or three fish between the, uh, it was, five of us fishing there. Uh, we hooked two or three fish on the Tenkata flies, but clearly uh, it was like another uh, a heavier kind of nymph. Uh, I think it might have been like a pheasant tail nymph or something with a bead head. That was catching a lot of fish for Doug and a couple other people that were with us. Uh, Dr. Shigaki is only here for a couple of days. He's like, yes, please put this on for me because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sure. he, he was also not, above changing the flies and i think the idea goes back to that he and i have pretty similar personalities i mean when we're fishing we kind of like to kind of keep the fly on but hey if somebody's catching more fish and we're trying everything we can and we're not enticing the fish there's something to be said about that so i'm i'm kind of i think i'm completely there with you uh you know i think um you know, and based on my formula, so far 99% of the time you work, or most of the time, it most depends on the places too, right, that you fish, you work. Uh, Boulder Creek, where I fish, I've got no qualms using a fly, those fly, the Tenkata flies year-round pretty much. But, um, you know, if somebody's kind of showing me something different, I'll, I'll try it. And another experience that I'll share too, and I made a little video about that one, uh, besides the North Platte, the only other river in time that I've had that kind of experience happen was on the Eagle River, also here in Colorado, and we were doing some TV uh, filming. And essentially, the guide that was with us, you know, for the day, he was catching clearly more fish than we were. He was using like an egg pattern with something kind of off of it. And I was like, okay, we're only here to do filming for a couple of days. We got to have some fish, otherwise, it's not a very interesting uh, video. 
So I changed and I caught plenty of fish as well as the host of the show. But at the very end, uh, it was really interesting. The video's on the, on the website and I'll put that up. Uh, at the very end, we're done filming. The crew is kind of wrapping up and I'm like, why, why could I not get this flight to work? And I started cycling through pretty much every technique that I could think of, like dead drifts, pulsating the fly, pausing in a couple of spots. And eventually I remembered this one technique that a teacher, uh, Sakaki Bara-san in Japan showed me where he would drift the fly twice over a certain good looking spot. And on the third time he would make the fly stop above that spot that looked really good. And all of a sudden, maybe something else changed in the water. I didn't see any actual bugs hatching or anything like that. But I did that technique, and I started hooking fish after fish. And within about an hour and a half to two hours, I probably had about nine fish caught exactly on the same technique, which was really kind of an interesting experience for me. It's like, you know, I changed the fly for a couple of days, and I eventually kind of figured out a technique. But who knows, something might have changed underwater too. So it's, I mean, personally, it's such a, wonderful thing to be able to like continually learn and trying different things and but at the same time when i really want to keep it simple keep four variations of a fly in my box you know something about that yeah well, I, I think the variables really are the most fun part you know as you said before it's a, thank goodness there isn't an algorithm you know uh, these are living things and uh, you know they're you never know quite what they're going to do or what they're going to watch and now, like, you know, in terms of your, you know, besides like, you know, the Delaware River being challenging, like, do you find like that there's like certain kinds of waters that you can kind of go with very almost full confidence that pretty much any fly works? Or do, do you find that it's more perhaps seasonal or times of the, the day? I mean, how do you how do you go back and forth, I guess, between this idea of, hey, any fly is OK and maybe I have to experiment a lot? There are times when I'm just in the mood for for uh, fishing to obviously rising fish on pretty flat water. Um, and if that's the case, then I'll use dry flies or emergers. I'll use very simple ones, those Bob Wyatt patterns that I mentioned before, and I'll use them with great confidence. Um, but I think the kind of water that I enjoy the most is what we call pocket water, which is, you know, water with lots of rocks and riffles and, and lots of features to it and, you know, fairly swift currents and eddies and, and just a lot of interest, a lot of interesting features in the water itself. Uh, and in those cases, I, I think you could do pretty well with, with a pretty wide range of flies. And, uh, you know, kabari are a fantastic choice. Uh, just about any nymph you'd want to use is probably a good choice. A nice, bushy, uh, visible dry fly that I can see with my increasingly worsening eyes. I, I always enjoy being able to use big dry flies. Um, so yeah, I, I think in, in cases where the, you know, the water's moving fast and there's a lot going on sort of hydraulically in the environment, I, I think, um, you can get away with an awful lot of flies there. And, uh, and it really, that's, it, it all comes down to presentation there. If you can, you can get a fly near a fish and, and have it sort of behaving as a living thing might behave, I think the fish will give it a chance. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. And, you know, I think with, it seems to me like with your book to Simple Flies, um, you know, I think we kind of covered all these themes, if you will, but it seems like you kind of want to share a message with people. Is there like a, something that you really want to share with people about flies or well, fly I fishing? I don't want to tell anyone, uh, you know, how to tie or how to fish because this is something we're all doing for fun. I, I think maybe... Uh, might be a good idea not to take it all quite so seriously. That that might be a, a, a takeaway you could get from the book. But um, but yeah, as we said earlier, fish are interested in yes, not no. They want to eat, and I think it, have a little more confidence in in the fly that you've got, and and just be more aware of uh, of just what an effective thing a, a very simple fly can be, and and don't. You know, you, you sort of hamstring yourself if you're if you're constantly worried that you don't have the right fly on. Um, you know, try something that's reasonable to use, but then fish it and, and fish it well, you know, and enjoy it. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. And you know, I like to always tell people it's like, hey, just have a little bit of. You have to believe. I think there's there's this element in fishing that sometimes we dismiss it uh, called luck, uh, but there's another one that is much less talked about, which is belief. <laughs> uh, you kind of have to have a certain amount of belief on the fly too, and. Uh, and he might start going towards confidence, you know, having confidence that the fly works. And I, at one point, like a friend of mine was kind of talking to, uh, you know, to a fish researcher and talking about like, why is it that we have like, you know, we spend all this time kind of changing flies and we start selling, you know, on different flies. And a lot of times it's a self-fulfilling kind of self-reinforcing cycle. You know, you catch a fish and it's like, that's the fly that catches fish. Um, and then like you use a fly for a little bit. Uh, and I see that very commonly with Tenkata flies. People that are, almost everybody here, of course, is new to Tenkata. So they use the Tenkata flies a few times or a couple of times or maybe an hour. They don't catch fish. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this fly doesn't catch fish. And it's, um, you know, so we have to kind of, I think you put it well, you know, like having confidence that this, you know, simple patterns can catch fish as well. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Yeah, confidence. A, a little faith in the fish. It's a, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a little, you got to enforce a little psychological discipline on yourself, you know. Don't don't get sucked into that vortex of, uh, you know, finding the, the silver bullet fly. You know? you've, you've got a reasonable fly on, you're in the game. So, you know, keep fishing. Keep the fly in the water. Yes, yeah. Well, and I, I think based on my experience this last week, too, I'll recommend that people go fishing with a buddy and you can try different flies. <laughs> and if somebody else is catching a lot more fish than you are, then maybe kind of change it. But unless that happens, you know, it's very often I go fishing with groups of people. And, you know, and I've uh, many times I've been fishing with people that are like obsessing over matching the hatch. And we're all catching the same exact numbers of fish. It's kind of been rare in my experience. Um, you know, like I talked about uh, the, the challenging experiences that I've had, but I've had way more experiences where, you know, sticking with one fly versus changing flies every few minutes is producing almost the same result, you know? So it's, um, I think when you talked about, depends on your mood, you know, if you want to experiment and change all the flies that you want, fine, that's completely okay. But if you want to kind of relax a little bit more, Give yourself a chance to do that. I think that that can work really well too. That, absolutely, and and again, like I say, you know, this this thought has occurred to people before you and I, um, and and you know that I, those of your readers who do get a chance to get a look at the book, I, I think they'll appreciate what uh, W. C. Stewart had to say on that subject, and what Jane Tenshaw had to say, and Ted Trueblood. You know, these these are people who've come to that same conclusion. So you know, some pretty significant fishing effort. Yeah. And Morgan, I'll definitely put a link, uh, you know, a picture of the cover of your book on our on our website, com forward slash podcast, where people can find you. But uh, if you want to tell our, our listeners, where can they, do you have a website? Where can people connect with you or find your book? I, I do not have a, a website besides my blog, The Fly Line, and that is always a good place to find me. Um, and that's just uh, theflyline.wordpress.com. Um, but beyond that, uh, you can find it in all the places you'd expect to find a book. Uh, the, the large online retailers, which most of us know what they are. Stackpole Books has its own site, and you can certainly buy the book through there. Chris Stewart is carrying some copies at Tenkara Bum, and that's a good place to look. But I don't, I don't think it's too difficult to get your hands on. And there is an ebook version available, too, if people uh, prefer that format. Excellent. Yeah, so I'll make sure to put a link to your uh, website, uh, theflyline.wordpress.com as well, where people can check out your writing and your uh, experiences with Tenkata as well as Simple Flies, and uh, you know, hopefully they'll learn a little bit more about it. It's a great book. It's um, I've... You know, I'll admit I've kind of, uh, there's a lot of books that have been coming my way since I took on Tenkara. And, you know, like uh, for the most part nowadays, like because my my path has been a little bit different from what is being written about uh, in general, I kind of shied away from a lot of books, but I, I was really impressed by the quality and just how much value uh, I think you offered in the book. And I'm very honored to be, uh, to have been included there, like a nice little, chapter on Tenkara, which I, I think is a, it's a fun chapter that I'm glad you included in there. Well, and I was going to say, yeah, I, I think your, your listeners would be interested to know that uh, 
know, there is a sidebar and a, a good interview with you, and you do really say some very cool things, and it's one of my favorite parts of the book, and it's a really interesting read, and, and I'm sure people will enjoy that. So, uh, And, and uh, honestly, you know, Tenkara, the, the whole Tenkara movement was, was itself a, a big part of the inspiration for the book, and it's all over the book, as I say. It, it, the book leads off with Dr. Shigaki and the Catskills, and, and Tenkara goes right through it like a like a thread through the book. So, um, but thank you very much, Daniel. I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, alerting your listeners to the fact that it's there and I, people get a chance to read it. I hope they enjoy it, but it's always good talking with you, man. I, I'm, I'm glad you called it. This is a, it's been a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Thanks so much for making the time. It's a great conversation. It's, uh, you know, flies. I always like to think they're such a small little thing. They're so diminutive, diminutive, but there, there's so much to be said about them, and it's, uh, it's always fun to talk about flies. Uh, it's always my, one of my favorite topics, really, and within fly fishing. So thanks again for joining us and uh, you know making the time to talk about simple flies, simple fly fishing, sharing Tenkara, and uh, participating in the, one of the early episodes of the Tenkara cast. I'm, I'm very grateful to be here. Thanks again, man. It's great talking with you. Thank you very much for listening to the Tenkara Cast. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Nick Ogawa, also known as Takenobu. Check out his music at takenobumusic.com. We'll be posting links to any references we made in this podcast, such as Takenobu's music, on our website, www.tenkarausa.com forward slash podcast. And until next time on the Tenkara Cast. <laughs>